What is the uh, proper relationship, what should be the proper relationship between a chairman of the Fed and a president of the United States? Well, first of all, the Federal Reserve is an independent agency, and that means basically that uh, there is no ag other agency of government which can overrule actions that we take. So long as that is in place and there is no evidence that the administration or the Congress or anybody else is uh, requesting that we do things other than what we think is the appropriate thing, then what the relationships are uh, don't frankly matter. And. Uh, Issue 8 of the Clues Chronicle. We are your hosts, Kay and Hoi Poloi. In this issue, we interview independent researcher Richard Kotlers, talk about his relentless curiosity about how our money system works, and try to get at just what and who and which lodges of power are behind the whole problem of the banking system. After that, we will read and comment on our ambitious but underwhelming topic, well, or overwhelming topic, the banks' war against us, in an attempt to shed new light on this complicated dilemma of civilization, of the human tendency to combat common sense, and technology's role in the scheme. Richard is not our typical guest, because he's not like familiar with the whole media fakery research thing. Right. But without understanding or diving into media fakery and propaganda, he still has come to a remarkable similar understanding with us about the underpinnings and unfairness of the current money paradigms and our collective forced impotency mm -hmm. in talking about them with real and simple language. Yeah, that's the theme of this episode for sure. I thought we could ask Richard for help dissecting this complex topic uh, too often populated by economists that say and mean nothing or conspiracy theorists that reach or lead us to deliberately crafted dead ends which effectively make the topic just as difficult to navigate. So, we met him at his home in St. Paul, Minnesota, on the evening of January 15th, 2016, me and my friend, who listened and uh, talked with Richard and me afterwards. And then Kay called in through Skype, and I tried to record with both Audacity and Ever, which is a clumsy third-party Skype recorder. Despite the amateurish arrangements, we mostly got a fair recording, of this fascinating and probably somewhat divisive discussion. Enjoy. Just start and uh, we'll see how it goes. So, one of my favorite quotes of yours, Richard, I've heard you say is that if you can't translate what you know into the vernacular, 
you don't know it. Right. Yeah, one of the things that's happened in our society in general, and in economics in, in particular, is we've lost control of these areas of our life, largely because we've lost control of the language that we use to express in these different areas. Um, the, the case of anything that has to do with money and economics is a prime example. Um, in fact, I'm, stu- I'm actually in the process now uh, of developing course material, which I've tried out in some sessions at uh, McCall- McAllister College in St. Paul, where um, I tried to go into the economic sphere and pick out words in economic sayings and things out of the Wall Street Journal and things like that, and I restate them in plain English. And when you restate things in plain English, a lot of times you get a gasp because <laughs> people don't people don't didn't realize that that's what people were saying or what was going on and that sort of thing. And they realize if if you work at this long enough, you realize that from the time we were babies on the rug in front of the TV and learning our language, when it comes to thinking about economics or money, not only have we been let's say politely say misinformed. But our brains have been hardwired in such a way that we cannot even have hardly a cogent thought about money and economics. And that's at the root of our economic problem. The root of our economics problem is not lack of money. There is no such thing as lack of money. For people who believe it's hard for me to believe, too, because I'm having a hard trouble every month trying to pay my (laughs) bills. But that's not really because of lack of money. It's because it's a lack of understanding of what money is. Okay, that's very interesting. Um, That's a good introduction. I was going to ask you, so how did you come by your knowledge if you're not some rich banker with tons of money? I just talk about things in, in, in plain English. Like, let's say, for example, here's here's the one at the core of our economic problem, so I'll give you that one, although it'll, it'll probably be a little disorienting to some people. If you go into a bank and you want to borrow some money, certain things will transpire. Now, you, you could, like, say if you wanted $10,000, you could go, you could go to your friend and who you think maybe has has that kind of money, and you, and you can say, i got something to talk to you about, and he might say, well, come on over to my house, we'll sit around the kitchen table and talk about this. And you do that, and you ask him, can I borrow $10,000 from you because I want to buy a car. But Now, if he decides that he, he will loan you the money, at the end of the conversation, you will shake hands. He'll pull a checkbook out of, his, out of the drawer of his desk, and he will write a check. He'll say, okay, how much money was that? Again, oh, $10,000. Okay, that was to you. And then he signs the check. He rips it out of the book. He hands that check to you, and you go spend that. So it spends like money. Now, your friend then, for him to make that check good, he has to have $10,000 in his account. And when he hands that check to you, that money goes out of his account and into another account that you put the check into. I think I remember this conversation because you were talking about how there are some people who that, that rule doesn't seem to apply. Yeah, it doesn't apply to bankers. If I went and did that with a banker, let's say I don't have a friend that has a lot of money, or, you know, I, I don't, I should take it, you know, that's what banks are for. That's where you go to borrow money, right? So I should just do that. And so I walk into a bank and I talk to him instead. And I say, I want to borrow some money. He says, what do you want it for? And can you pay it back? And we would go back and forth through through various phases where we, we would gradually come to an agreement that let's suppose that he finally approves a loan. He, read, he goes into where he ever he keeps his checkbook and he brings out a blank check and he writes ten thousand you know check payable for ten thousand dollars puts your name on it puts for a car 
and then he signs it. As soon as he signs it, that check becomes good. You can go give that check to, a, let's say, a car dealer or a private party, and sure enough, they give you the car. It's essentially the same thing. But there's a critical difference. When the banker pulls out his checkbook, rips out a blank check, and then fills out the check for $10,000 and hands it to you. I think people are already in their, in their heads. They're going, the banker just invents it? I'm dancing around a little here because I know a lot of the anti-bank and, and monetary dialogue, alternative monetary dialogue that's out there. You know, there's, there's a lot of people, so the banker creates it out of thin air and it's insubstantial. There's nothing backing it. I'm not answering all those questions directly right now because that gets into a long conversation. Okay, okay. I mean, the, bank, the banker's not doing anything illegal. He may doing, be doing something that in, the, in our societal context doesn't make any sense. But that doesn't mean that he's doing anything illegal because a law was passed in our Congress to our democratic process that we approved of in 1913 called the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 that says that he can do that. I and see. It says, what the law says essentially is, is when money needs to be created mm. in the society. I found you, Richard, or you found me because you're in my community and you're known in, well, the spiritual community, among others, of my father's generation, for knowing stuff about money. Who are you, really? I'm a regular workaday guy. Grew up in a working class family in Chicago. Did a lot of jobs myself. Worked in factories and uh, went to school. Did the normal things Americans do. Bought a couple houses. Bought a couple cars in the course of my life. Uh, and it's through that experience, really, in the questioning that's arisen from that experience that has taught me what I know. The reason... The reason... We wanted you on the show is because uh, what you seem to know about money is a great deal about kind of knowing nothing about money, like like just being able to talk in the vernacular, as you say. And that seems to empower everyone about money because it seems to be like the philosophy that you don't need to be an economist. You don't really need to be any particular business person to talk about it because the whole point is that we don't sit around together and ask this important question of what is money anyway? Or the question that you proposed, which is, where does money come from? Because it makes all the difference in terms of what money is and how it acts. In other words, the more, in other words, the more we ask this question, where does money come from, what is money, the more we are actually discussing it with each other, and that's a good thing. Yeah. And the example I just gave to you, and I think I got actually got to the, to the punchline, and you ran out of patience. <laughs> Sorry about that. But, we um, tend to do that sometimes. But where money comes from, I'm, I'm, right now I'm just talking functionally. I'm not getting real philosophical. Just talking functionally is when somebody goes into a bank and the banker writes a check and hands it to the person, that act, that, uh, that interaction between the banker and the borrower is where our money is created. It's where all dollars come from. They're created as, pi as private bank loans. At the at the bank itself. At the bank itself, and yet the and the upshot of all that it means that every dollar that's created is not created as a dollar's worth of wealth that we then benefit from. It's created as a dollar's worth of debt that we owe the bankers. Well, I I have a question about that. I was under the impression that it was the people who gave their savings that was the collateral on which the bank wrote. You know. There are, there lent are some, out that money. There are there are sometimes the bank there are some types of banks for which that is true, like a save for a savings and loan bank. If you see you know whatever saddle savings and loan the savings and loan bank is a bank that does 
that has a different kind of charter. And so it doesn't really create money. It takes money in on loan and pays interest to the people that put on deposit and then it lends it out at higher interest to somebody else. So they essentially become agents for doing exactly what you think banks do. But if we're talking about commercial banks within the Federal Reserve System, that's not what happens. And it's not, it's not a conspiracy idea. This is, this is very, stated very clearly within the Federal Reserve's own publications. They describe in great detail how they create, how they create money. There's a sort of a classic document that you can get, you can download, called Modern Money Mechanics that's put out by the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago that explains this. And that bank is, I mean, that document has been chopped up and re-quoted and the graphics reproduced in many books about, textbooks about money and banking and, and notice sort of thing. And they'll tell you, this is how money's created. It's created as private bank loans. There used to be other dollars in our system that were created in a different way, but there are not now. In other words, the bank that Kay was just talking about would not be the creator of the money, but it would use the money that those other banks actually create. Yes. So then you're talking about banks taking loans. The bank is the one borrowing the 10000 then. The bank's borrowing it from a bigger bank? Who's borrowing uh, They might be borrowing. They're probably borrowing it from a depositor. You know, like, if, you know, if, if you stand at the, at the door of a savings loan uh, bank or at a credit union, you'll see people come in and open savings accounts and they'll put money into those savings accounts or they'll buy CDs, certificates of deposit, and that sort of thing. Uh, there's various other mechanisms. They might buy bonds. They might walk into a bond dealer. And those people are essentially putting their money on deposit in some financial institution that can then turn around and lend it out at, at a greater interest rate than they're getting. So that's sort of classic banking, but our, our banking system, the way it's set up, in, in the year 1694, uh, the Bank of England found it. That was the first what we would call modern bank. And that was that was founded on the basis I'm just telling you about them. People that had money uh, came in and put it on deposit, but then the banker could not only run out that money that was put on deposit, but he could lend out a multiple of that money. He could just increase that money. They call it a fractional reserve system. That's where all those Federal Reserve cartoons come from, isn't it? Where they Where they say, well, you know, they said if we had this gold, to multiple people, we can just keep giving out paper versions of that, and we never actually have to return, unless there's a run on the bank. Yeah, that's, and that's precisely what the Goldsmith Bankers about 500 years ago did when they established modern banking. They, actually, they, were, they were people that, that um, there were banks that took in gold and put it on deposit. They, and then they would give a receipt to the person that put it on deposit so that the person would come in with receipt at some time, and he could demand his gold. How do you know this information is uh, is good? Because now that I've seen it in a YouTube video, I'm like, um, where did they cite that? Or like, how did you find out about this? Uh, I've, it's in a lot of books. <laughs> I don't know. You know, academically, sir, you can get the you can get it from the Federal Reserve. You can get it from you know from looking at testimony in Congress. You can. There have been times where there have been many times where uh, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And other officials of the Federal Reserve have been called before committees of Congress to answer for what they have done. Really? What is that? What was that like? It's pretty interesting. Sometimes it's amazing stuff. I mean, they'll tell you. Well, there's 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 a chairman. There's a guy, Wright Patman. He he was a Democrat from uh, from Texas, and he was on a he was in the Congress for like 70 years or something like that. And he was on a and for almost that whole time, he was on a House Banking and Currency Committee, and he was a chairman of that 
committee for like something like 15 years. I mean, a guy was wrote books of money. He was firsthand participant for almost a century in, in the comings and goings. I mean, through the Great Depression and, and all these different things. And he's he, I can almost quote him. He says, uh, in the many years of questioning high high officials on the matter, I have yet to hear one plausible answer as to why the federal government has given away the right to issue the people's money to them in exchange for interest on that money. That's a, that's very a very interesting quote. Yes, yes. And the quote sounds a little better than I just gave it. It's, he's, he really stated very powerfully, but he said, many years, on the, you know, we just gave this power away, and every time the government, which has the power to create the money, it's in the Constitution. Well, who is does that does that guy give us a clue in in who is doing this? How this pattern spread or how this culture spread? Can you tell us about you know maybe what, a little bit about what we talked about when we were rehearsing these uh, questions? You said something about the ancient world. That's really going to spread it out. <laughs> I'm trying to take your advice and not get too crazy. I know, no, but it's okay. No, it's not about being crazy. People like crazy ideas, but they're curious about who. Who is responsible? Who can we hold responsible for this besides, obviously, you know, our, each other and ourselves? Well, what you and I talked about is, is actually it goes back to the temple cults of the ancient city-states and kingdoms. And, you know, like this, the, the like say the city-states of Greece or the different cities in Rome, they all had like the, each locality, each, each like region had its, its own like set of deities. And they come down to us now as sort of, you know, Dionysus and you know mm. all these you know these Parthian figures for this area that we start study as Greek mythology or Roman mythology or, or you know Norse mythology for the Vikings and this sort of thing. So and, and so those temples controlled the religious observances, but they also controls uh, the creation and issuance and control of money as an extension of, of their of their religious obligations. So am I to understand that these temple cults of the ancient world are, are that's that term is also a reference to the fact that certain civilizations had multiple cults operating different systems? Sometimes yeah. Yeah, sometimes it competed. And what happened is eventually the cults, the temple cults, were sort of religious organizations, you know, they had certain loyalties and certain ways they thought. Uh, and over the time, they became they came more and more in conflict with the civil authorities. As the civil authorities didn't care about the temple cults so much, they were they were more concerned, like say, like a modern politician. How do we get enough tax money to pick up the garbage on the street, or how? You know, they were, they were concerned with practical things. The temple cults were observed with religious type things, and they operated from a different point of view. So there was an ancient Roma, a time where there, there was created a separation of church and state. Roman government was. This was way before the Roman Empire now. And there was established something called the Roman Republic, which is very similar in a lot of ways to the establishment of the United States and played out its the, the historical parallels between the establishment of the Roman Republic, its rise and how it's played out. It even seems to be playing out now. Are you hinting right. that are you hinting that the Roman Republic was like a downfall? No, the Roman Republic was the rise of Rome. The Empire was a downfall. I see. Okay, that's interesting. Wow, so it goes back that far. So can you trace back that far to today? Yeah, I can Sarah? probably draw it up a lot further that, and it'll make more sense if I don't go back that far. Where we need to go with it maybe is back to um, the discovery of the new world by, you know, I say discovery in quotes. 
as if you know because people did live here okay. yeah right <laughs> thank uh, you for that yes discovery is yeah, related to that word discovery, yeah let's let's just call it that and put it in quotes for our listeners and uh so this the the spanish discovered quote unquote america but there's a lot of evidence that suggests that spain wasn't re was really looking for a route to the orient uh for monetary reasons you know another route to the Orient is going west and said east because they actually knew that the world was round and the Orient late to the West as well as to the East. So they were trying ah, to break away. So they were trying to break away from a relationship with the Middle East? In a certain sense, yeah. They, I mean, that's going to be getting into a lot of explanation, but I won't go there. It's just that um, the fact is when Spain discovered America, okay. Only because he thought the Earth was round. Okay, yeah. go ahead. But when, they, <laughs> but when they discovered America, they were looking basically for precious metals. They didn't really care if there was an America out there. They couldn't care less. I just wasn't that concept wasn't even part of their mind of their world. They wanted an access to gold and silver. So they they had they brought mining equipment with them. Oh, Probably not a lot. The mining equipment they they wound up using that. was the natives. The, I was going to say yeah, the mining equipment was the local population. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you just kind of look like yeah. There's there's an American uh, uh, monetary historian. He's one of the classic, probably the classic guy of all time on this, except for one current living guy, Alexander Del Mar. And he was very, he was actually a mining engineer that got involved in money and became part of the U.S. government, became one of the founders of the Bureau of, one of the Bureau of Statistics and became a representative of the U.S. government in international monetary talks through the late part of the 19th and early part of the 20th centuries. He did a lot of the original research that people count on today. One of the things he said, he made an assertion. He was always trying to connect. Well, how does it? What is money? How does it connect with silver and gold? Why do we need to see, seem to need silver and gold? Why are people so murderous when they get around silver and gold? And one of the, and he came to the conclusion in a book that he he has, he will call the history of precious metals. And he's talking about in his time now. If we were to look around at the gold stock in the world, you know, one heap right in front of you, we would and determine how that got gold got there. What was the actual price of the gold? Now he's talking about human price. He's not talking about market manipulation price. That's what I mean. You've got to get back to the language. You've got to describe how that gold got there. People were conquered. The, the number one war, reason for wars, like in the time of the Romans, was to find more territory, not to even to have more gold, to, to get more slaves. Because that was power in their part of the world. What did they want the slaves for? They wanted them to work the mines. Because working the mines, I mean, they would live an average of a year and they'd be dead. And they'd need new slaves. And... Uh, so Alexander Del Mar said, if you really wanted to have an estimate of the cost of gold, uh, it's existing in the world today, you know, that's been freed up and it's available for use. He says it's, it's a, the cost is about one life per ounce. Oh, my goodness. There's reasons to believe that that's a very low estimate. And, um, and it's something that, you know, that goes on. And no, that is so, it's so sickening to think about that exploitation that's been happening for so long. And again, like in the habit of just naming things and paraphrasing things and trying to, with the optimism that we can reform this and change this and make it so this doesn't happen, what is the culprit here? Is this is this the result of colonialism or is it empire, imperial colonialism or what do you think is, is going on here? Well, I mean, in, term, in practical terms, what's going on in the world is uh, the way we look at and the way we define money and the value of money. Wow. Just as simple as that. That's pretty amazing. 
Yeah, it's just as simple as that, and that's that's what we're doing. And and if we defined it differently, you know, things like the debt would go away. Well, it it take a little more than a definition for that to happen. I mean, we didn't set up the system. How can we possibly ever expect? Well, when you to say we it? didn't set up the system, who did? Was it somebody? Was it these space aliens that people keep talking about? I mean, money is a man-made thing. Well, I'm not. I mean, did you help set up the banking system yourself? Are you are you part of that group? That well, can not, get those not, special loans for free and not, stuff. I know, but I have, I have the issues of my time to deal with, just like they had the issues of their time to deal with, and I think I can explain to you pretty directly how money came to be the way it is through how they saw the issues of their time. So, mm -hmm. I think also I think what Kay is trying to say here is that sometimes it seems like I know that you stay away from certain subjects for for your own reasons, but we'd like to hear those reasons a little bit if you can hint you know when you and i are discussing this um well it was the jews the jews are totally responsible or it was the masons or or you know something like that why is that not okay is that not okay to, to talk about that it there, is it to us versus them i think it's one thing that we do need to talk about and the very fact that there is you know like you said like the jews the very fact that anti-semitism is so uh, out there and, and such a uh, rampant thing under certain conditions, it's because we treat those subjects like they're untouchable. We won't just talk about the historic facts. But okay, just just to just to nitpick here and with our own little language that we use at Clues Forum, Semitism kind of translates to the belief that the Jewish race is superior. So anti-Semitism might be okay. It simply means I don't believe that Jews are superior to any other race. Do you think that anti-Semitism could be used as a hate word to shy people from talking about it? Well, let's use as a hate word. Talk to people that use it. Yeah. And you'll, you know, and you'll, I have, I'm a high school teacher, and I have experience with a lot of people, and I don't see a lot of anti-Semitism. I mean, there's ignorance, you know, but actually the all-out hate, people don't have time for that kind of nonsense hate. I so if that exists... It's not very many people, is my point. Besides, there is mistrust, you know, and ignorance. But, I mean, I'll, it's in a lot of it is from what they hear on the media and on the Internet anyway. Yeah, so, I don't think we're trying to derail you, Richard, at right. all. I just think no. it's just in our culture, when we're talking about it, we're like, well, who who can we talk about, you know, and who can't we talk about? Okay, well, I can, I can talk about the Jewish. I won't shy away from it. As a person that's thought about these things and talked about them, read about them, I've come to certain points of view that seem to give me some insight in terms to explain what has happened historically and what happens today. Lay it on me. <laughs> Lay it on me. I can't. Okay. I got the popcorn uh, ready. <laughs> okay. Columbus discovered, quote-unquote, America or the Western Hemisphere, and quickly he was given orders by the Pope, and it's, it's known by some papal bull name or something like that, but essentially what it said what was now that you're in this new land he columbus was discovering that he, he was seeing a lot of gold and sometimes the gold was so plentiful it was used for common things it was used uh, the mayas used it for water t water tanks and even in pipes and even planking i mean that mundane use back in europe of course this you know gives people dreams you know the native americans at some point uh, called gold the yellow metal that makes white men crazy <laughs> I think that's the definition. And um and and so uh I don't know, it's either King of Spain or the Pope issued uh, this edict that says 
that told Columbus and the conquistadors that followed, get gold peacefully if you can, but by all means, you know, the bottom line is get gold. And he sent them forth into these lands, you know, on those ships uh, in the captain's drawer. He had this, and this is this goes back to your doctrine and discovery. He had a letter that that said that whoever lands on a beach has the power of claiming this land, and the people and all the life on it, including the people on it, for God, for king, for queen, for country, back in Europe. And then that the whoever was captain of the ship, this expedition was was under the power to do that, and actually had a requirement to do that. Not only that, but he had a specific speech. I think it's the requirement in Spanish, I suppose it sounds like. And he was supposed to unroll this thing, stand in front of the natives, their land or whatever, and mumble this thing to the trees to people who had no concept of what he's talking about. <laughs> right. And and if they didn't believe it and believe that they were, you know, now the subjects of the great king and the real God and all this, well, it's too bad for them. They just they put themselves in a losing position and anything that happened to them was after that was their problem. And so then they went on with the conquest. So it brought in a lot of gold, more gold than even Europe had any use for. It's, the Spanish brought in a tremendous amount of booty, and it wound up in Europe. Okay, Europe was at this time was that this gold was starting to come back from the quote-unquote New World. It was starting to regain the ancient Greek treasures that were lost from antiquity and actually lost to the Muslim world to the east uh, in, Iraq, in what we call uh, Persia and Iraq, Iran today. Actually set up a very... Um, a very high culture, the highest culture the world had yet seen. Yeah, based it, on these things, and they preserved that stuff. That's why we had it was available for the Western Europe to re, re-import it. Not to derail your conversation at all. I want to keep going with your thought, but I just want to interject that I read a writing of yours recently about Saladin, yeah. and how that was basically the Muslims saving civilization and the the Judeo-Christian world. Sorry for those that get offended by that term. Um, was kind of like almost bitter or felt guilty about that because they had Richard the Lionhearted just slaughtering people yeah. in the other direction. And then as a result of that, um, you know, crusades happened and all that, and all because of like the way they controlled values, which in turn controlled the money system. Your writing on that is super inspiring. and um, Well, it's super potent too. I mean, that's what, you know, we have right in, right now we're in the middle of this quote-unquote clash of civilizations between the West and the Muslim world and the battle with ISIS and all Which is totally artificial. It's 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 it, pitting it, people against each other. But those things have their root in the story that I'm telling you about. It, from the Muslim point of view, Europe self-destructed itself from its own wars and its own greed and and whatever went on there. And civilization had to flee to the East to find a place where it could take up residence against and it found that it could do so in the Middle East. Uh, Iraq and Persia and and some of these countries were about, they were there about the flowering of civilization. And they preserved and continued the development of that civilization, which essentially had its root in Greece and in Rome. It was Western civilization until the Crusades came. And then the Crusades in their own way took things back. Now, from the Muslim point of view, again, I want to put that around in quotes because I don't think, I don't know that there's any unanimity among Muslims on this, but... The Muslim world was peacefully minding its own business, let's say around the end of the first millennium and the start of the second millennium, and it was had actually taken up Western culture and was preserving it and was giving it back to the West, without which the West probably would not have it. We wouldn't have a Western civilization. A Renaissance was a result of our Muslim culture that had been preserved coming back to Europe 
and finding a way to get started in using Muslim banking practices. So that's another banking actually came from the Muslim East, but it was not based on usury. Usury was prohibited. You know, merchant trade was taken to a higher level by the Muslim world, and then it was invaded, conquered, and brutalized for no good reason, and then treated as an enemy. And then, you know, eventually it was conquered and divided up into artificial countries. But um, when when this vast amount of gold started flooding back to Europe, Europeans actually had no use for it. They didn't, they didn't spend that much money. They didn't have that much time. And it became a burden because especially like the people that were very wealthy, you didn't want to carry around all that. You didn't want to store it. You made yourself very open to the hazards of robbery. And so what you did, you looked for a place to deposit that gold. And so they looked around. What did they find to deposit? Well, there was one industry that was going and had a wide, wide network, pretty well established. That was the industry of the goldsmiths. They were the people that took in gold and basically sold it. And they could sell for, for money bullion, but usually they sold it for art, for creating art and creating jewelry and that sort of thing. And so there was a goldsmith, and the goldsmith generally had a vault that was as secure as you could get in that time when they get this gold. And they say, uh, I understand you're, you know, you, you're into the gold business, and I'll tell you what, I'll keep the, I'll keep the, your gold in my vault for safekeeping, and I'll give you a receipt. And any time you want to retrieve your gold and you want to actually have physical possession of it, so. I'm getting to the punchline. <laughs> it's a good story. I know. You know, it is. You, just, you know, we want the title. Hoy and I were like, <laughs> we're real picky that way. <laughs> So, no, you're doing a good job of explaining it. So One time um, I did a uh, all-day workshop on money in uh, Fargo, North Dakota, and we did it at the public library downtown. And people came, and we got as soon as we could in the morning, about 9 in the morning. We broke a little bit for lunch, half hour or something, came back, and then at quarter to 5 in the afternoon, this voice comes on the speaker and says, you know, the library closes in 15 minutes. Will everybody, you know, Please leave. And so, and people went into a panic. So, my gosh, we just started this. We're not, we had been there all day already. We had been there eight hours, but they wanted to keep going with it. And that's common. I, you know, when people get into the story, and it helps if everybody's in a, in a room together because you can have a lot more communication. You can see people. Anyway, so we decided, well, we got 15 minutes to clear out of here. What are we going to do? They said, well, let's meet at a coffee shop. I know a coffee shop downtown here that has a back room. That's not used during the day. We can, I'm sure we can use that. So we went there and they let us use the back room. And we went on for another eight and a half hours. Oh, my goodness. And, oh and in my fact, goodness. most of the people, sometime during that time, went home for dinner and came back so they could rejoin the group. And we just kept going and going. And they could have, I think, um, at the end of it, people are still interested in staying, but they just physically pooped out. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And what was your subject matter? So what part of money was it about? Uh, where money comes from and, and that sort of thing. Oh, okay. I mean, it was a lot of things I'm telling you right now, but it's also about other things. We did some other. Also. Cool. And what organization did you do that through? Me. <laughs> oh, do you like, put an ad on Craigslist or at the library or what? Basically, I once I started telling the story, people started inviting me places to tell it. I'm in the process right now of founding a monetary institute in the Twin Cities. Uh, oh, are called wow. the in, in, uh, Institute for the Redemption of Money. And it's, <laughs> and it's basically about that. And, and basically, it's, if you want it, its purpose in a nutshell, the purpose is to raise people's consciousness about money. You know, that involves telling the story, the history, the real story, where does it come from, making them aware of what the, really, the laws are today, what they're doing, what's happening to them when they're handling, handling money. 
people don't realize so, how it's handling them and what they're doing. They have, they have no idea. I know most people have a credit card in their pocket. I'm not going to ask you if you got one. The, and they'll like go to a store and they'll use it. Like they'll say they'll go into a clothing store. They'll see a shirt on the rack for 50 bucks. They'll look in their wallet and say, oh, shoot, I don't have 50 bucks. But I got this piece of plastic. I got a credit card, so I can, I think I can get it. So they pick up the, the shirt and they walk with that with their piece of plastic to the clerk at the counter, and the, and the clerk will you know will ring up and she'll say, okay, run your card through this machine over here, this scanner. And so you run your card through the machine, and the number fifty dollars comes up. And and so you say to yourself, wow, I just I just got fifty dollars, you know. And the clerk mm-hmm. says, yeah, you did. You now you you just bought the shirt, and so you just paid for it. What most people do not realize is that when that number fifty pops up. That $50 was created. It's the first time in the history of the universe that that $50 existed and was conjured into being with that swipe of the card, with prior agreement from the bank. Because, I mean, that's why that's why all credit cards have uh, bank logos on them. It's, uh, you know, MasterCard, Visa don't, aren't the bank. They actually don't create the money. But the banks create the money through that swipe of the card. It's like Christmas time when people are really running through and they're running their credit cards through for this item and that item, this item and that item. And you ask them precisely, what did you just do? You could probably talk to 10,000 of them and not one of them will say, well, I just created $50 when I ran that, when that card. Mm-hmm. That's so, exactly what they did in real English. I'm telling you, in real English. They have no concept of that. They have no idea. Right. Just did. And, and what's the consequence of that, though? So, the, so they create money. And, the consequence of that is that they have just created $50 that can never be paid. It will never be repaid. You know, you think you'll pay it off with your credit card when you pay your bill and stuff like that. It's If you do the math on this, if you follow the math, you know, our civilization's in love with this uh, phrase, do the math. We actually do the math in that transaction and, you know, take some time with it. You know, that's what we did like in this Fargo workshop. We would take things like that and take some time with it. And Are you walk- saying that if you create a big debt, then you can't pay it off? Is that what Yeah, you, you can't. You can't pay it off, but you can redefine it out of existence. Oh, um, right. Okay. But you can't actually pay it off because what you when you created fifty, you created a fifty dollars. But when you start getting your bank from Visa or Mastercards, they're not going to want fifty dollars. They're going to want fifty dollars plus interest. You created fifty dollars with them that you could pay them back with to satisfy the contract. There's no place in the world where anybody created the money to pay the interest. Even though I think your explanation of yourself, you know, you, you don't work for anyone. You're just you. I know that you, like, for example, come from an anthroposophist tradition. I have to ask you, what is anthroposophy? Because it kind of makes me nervous. Like, is this Scientology? Is kind it of, is, it is not Scientology. Is it like an American consumerist, New Age Christian denomination? Does it do the Masonic allegory stuff? Or is it, isn't it like a mystery school? Uh, it's kind of derived from the tradition of mystery schools. You're gonna get, you know, you're getting into religion and stuff here that's very personal. And you're gonna, if you if you line up a thousand anthroposophists, you're gonna get a different thousand different answer, I guarantee. And probably every one of them will be true. Each one of them is what it means to them. And basically, it's based on the work of Rudolf Steiner. He was a scientist, um, philosopher, author, playwright, a bunch of things in uh, in in uh, Germany in the early part of the 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century. He was supposedly an initiate and had 
clairvoyant powers where he could read things in the universe and in the realities of life in the cosmos that the ordinary man could not. And so he started to speak about it publicly. So what what is it that you find meaningful about it? Uh, what 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 anthroposophy? Do, do you feel like your mind is colonized by this, or do you feel like you're empowered by this? I feel like I'm empowered by this because I was well into my monetary mission, so to speak, and my monetary quest before I met anthroposophy. I met anthroposophy in the course of doing this, and I found a lot of things that helped me with the answers and helped me with the quest. And I also found a lot of really interesting people. So uh, I mean, you, so they're not telling you, they're not telling you like this is how you need to think about money. You're just like, no, this is how I think about money, and uh, you know, I've got some language that I'm bar- borrowing from anthroposophy because it puts things in raw terms for yeah. people. Yeah, and I think one of the things that anthroposophy does is, um, and I'm gonna anything about Ralph Simon preface with, as I understand it, is as something you can take in the background because I don't pretend to read his mind, but it's that we can, we don't have to know things in a derivative manner by listening to authorities. We can know things directly by listening to our own lives and observing life in general. Holy crap, that's like my philosophy. Darn it! Yeah. Darn it!
while I was listening to him, both the first time when I was trying to interview him and um, after, this theme kept coming up in my head, and it was something like this. I saw in my mind's eye three things going on. Having a penny, melting a penny down, and letting it be. Uh, going back from one abstract to the other, that our existence is boxed in, existence in society is boxed in by, there's the uh, world, which is the sacred creation we live in, uh, which we participate in by living in it and shape just by being. Then there's the capital built environment, which is basically our acts and thoughts and how we account for that environment, which is the realm of religion and mining. You know, we collect minerals and then we, we hoard them and say, okay, this is, this is a value that we have on that. Language and the background computer programs that, that are running in our heads about all this, like how we value things together and stuff. And then there's the traded abstract capital, so the solid formed penny, which is only an index of our agreement and our explanation. It's almost like an act of faith is the creation of that penny, and then we all sacredly pass it around going, yes, this is worth one cent, you know? Right, right, as opposed to a quarter, which yeah. <laughs> doesn't but, even, the end really doesn't matter. And it could also be way oversimplified intrinsic value with no reason, and none needed, and that's, you know, that's where there's all sorts of disagreements about what is sacred and what is not sacred, you know, and I'm just going off of the assumption that everything is sacred. And then our recognition for that inherent value, or our reasoning for the value, our intellectual naming and describing of it as the capital, and then the third thing is the paper or the agreement or the money, the extreme abstraction. And then you get to this infinite loop because we can constantly ask the question, what is the real value of this fake value we invented? And so I'm not really sure how it came up, but I remember us saying something about consent way of decision making. And so I was wondering if you thought, is this is that pure way possible? Do we can we just have discussions and consent? Why should we even use money? Shouldn't we boycott it until the banks war against us or this unconscious war against ourselves can end? Or do we have to face money? Do we have to do it because it's the best tool we have right now to to unify our values. I think we can't live without it. It's, it's. I mean, unless if you don't want to, uh, you've got to back out. Maybe live in the woods. You know, my brother does pretty well living without it. He barters a lot and things like that. Yeah. But he's even. He still has to go to the grocery store and buy. You know, his whatever. So how can I? You know, he can't barter that. Right. Hundred percent communes they have a local currency in their system but then when they deal with with like insurance and stuff they're still like all right well we're we're gonna play that game and you know haven't you heard of communes who are or these groups of people it could even just be neighborhoods of people who start this really cool barter system and they have these shops and stuff and then like there's been videos on the internet and then the feds come in and shut them down that could just be a scare tactic to get people not to do that right scare but, tactic if, videos. but if just one of them is real then the scare tactic will work because people will be like oh they're gonna come fuck with us again this is such a weird problem we have what what are your thoughts about after all that well i think we need to start defining our terms a little better you know banks with people like you and me or banks who only do business with banks 
So I think when you switch your conversations a lot, it's confusing. You know, where are we at now? What what part of the, because banking is so huge. I think Richard was mostly talking about banks that lend the banks. But to get back to that plain raw language that, you know, we all obviously want to get to, we have to cover a lot of ground because we've been, we've all gotten a bit behind on what is actually going on here. <laughs> we've gone behind. Yes, we are way behind. I think. I heard people, you know, financial dudes talking about what they're doing and they confess to tell you the truth. We're not really sure what we're doing, but it's making money. So we're going to keep doing it. All, all that nonsense. So how can, how can we hope to understand it when a lot of time these people don't? We need to start talking about it more and, and, and narrowing down the language. Exactly right. Narrow down that language, define our terms when we begin. So, you know, what portion to wrap our head around with banks. I would like to have Richard back. Oh, you know, I thought that I thought he had a lot of cool things to say. And, you know, I think he's used to giving a presentation. Yes. Well, we'll yeah, well, let's try to reach out to him again. Um, I loved the idea of sitting down with uh, someone that that maybe from the outside, they'd say, oh, you're one of those evil bankers. And then we can figure out, um, well, where exactly is everyone at here? And where does this misunderstanding begin? If there is one, maybe they really are, you know, crafty, psycho bankers. Well, there could be, but doesn't it sound more like it's the system, not the individuals, that it gets us in this predicament? There's not a bunch of evil bankers going, I'm going to screw you, but there's, you know, there's some greedy bankers here and there. I mean, they're just taking care of their self. Richard doesn't have a big long-term plan goal in banking. You know, he's got his own deal. He's just doing his own thing. And that's I mean, he's had two strokes. He's kind of more concerned about just getting by to the next day right now. So. Right. Uh, and and that hasn't affected his mental capacity either. I mean, not nothing nothing in the way of of um, cognitive reasoning and stuff like that. But yeah, you know, he's a sharp guy. Uh, yeah, let's try to get him back sometime. We see the overarching plan, perhaps. You know, we talk in such big picture terms that the guys within the system, I don't think they see it that way. And clearly, they're not in on it. You know, you don't. They don't need to be in on it. The system's in on it. Yeah, I totally agree. I think this is the whole idea of a conspiracy. You know, I'm prepared to just say we just we have a case of people being people most of the time. Yeah, that's right. I like that. People just being people. Exactly. OK, well, uh, as I mentioned in the interview, this thread on Clues Forum now feels slightly vague and grasping. Do you want to get into it anyway? Should we still read part of it? Yeah, let's pick a good a good couple of ones with nuggets. OK, so. First of all, why did I call this thread the bank's war against us? In my estimation, it was sort of a, a pun about bonds of trust that create need for the pronoun us or we. You know, it's like the bank's war against the concept of us, which the banks constantly strike at, as well as the state power trying to uphold the 1944 Bretton Woods agreements in order to divide the us into ever more thems that can be herded under a single unifying money culture that saves us, quote-unquote, from the division they create or at least emphasize in the first place. Unless we at least try to distinguish all the elements contributing to the problem, though, we don't even have a discussion. So when I was trying to make this thread, please just bear in mind that I was trying to draw a connection mainly between the technology that's growing and the habits of the bankers and what it appears like from someone being ground up by the system and like they can't 
repay this ever-growing debt, and it's actually impossible to ever get rid of the debt, and so on. So here's my disclaimer. Naturally, peoples are different, and that's nature, and you can find beauty in that if you choose, but the technological implementation of money even when it isn't usury, has been a kind of phantom tyrant of our contemporary money system, which thrives on the separation and division of even simple natural trust agreements between everyday folks, which is probably why they come in and break up uh, barter systems or something, if that's what's going on. Money systems are what have driven industry so hard to create the technology. So we're meant to fear and mistrust everyone except the dominant power which we must implicitly trust because its conductor's power to control us and divide us and make us afraid uh, reassures us of its ultimate potency in our lives. The system's appearance of stability, even if its stability is in instability, crisis and artificial debt may be what makes us feel uh, apathetic about trying to change the system through simple discussion. It all seems like the same malicious clockwork of a poorly designed system, but I say poorly designed, not designed for evil, though I guess emotional responses to either may, may flicker through this clarion call that we're trying to give about. We need to meet about money. We need to talk about it. What is money? What are banks? So that's it. No, I like I like your clarification about the evil thing because oh, that's out there on the internets. Right. And how do you fight evil, my friend? Hmm. Well, I guess you know if you create it, you you've just done that within yourself. So you got to fight within yourself, maybe. I don't know. It's up to, it's up to different people. Some people believe it's an outside thing that you got to go after and destroy out there. Right. It's but the evil it's all in our head. I, do you give evil power or, or do you ignore it? And you know the whole, so the whole evil thing, you have to assume intent on everyone to assume they're evil. Yes, uh, I think that's why the thread kind of just fizzled out. Um, microchipping people, forcing people into a kind of debt slavery, those seem evil to me instead of just, oh, that's a poor design of a human system. We could design better. The intention was to get discussion on things that seemed sneaky, like, oh, there's this sneaky thing going on in my community. I want to point it out here so that we can actually understand if there is a concerted effort to overturn you know, local money systems, we could all collectively identify it. But I don't think people were even on the same page when I wrote that. People were like, what? What are you talking about? Local money? I'm just trying to pay my bills. Okay, so to get to this thread, do the usual thing. Go to cluesform.info. Um, go to general discussion, the age of media fakery. So I guess this is because the topic is kind of about uh, general things in our world that, that come with the age of technological fakery of the news and history and things. The title is The Banks' War Against Us, uh, posted on October 19th, 2009 by Hoi Ploy. Technology and the Banking Movement 9-11 and 7-7 appear to be attempts by the criminal cowards to fulfill their wish to destroy all local communities and subjugate them to their world government, quote-unquote. Looking at the present state of their simulation technologies reveals a disturbing pattern. One, the desire to subjugate human will. The banking movement practices and tests anti-human technology 
under long periods and secret conditions before releasing weaker commercial versions to sell to the public. These weaker versions are viewed as the, quote, highest advancement, unquote, of human will, even while more advanced and deadly versions are kept for themselves. So I guess an example would be Project Whirlwind Computing, which was used initially as a concept for a missile defense system before it became, you know, the Apple iMac or whatever. They often develop this technology under the auspices of humanism, even while performing inhumane experiments that are later exposed as the crimes they are, for example, MKUltra. Possible solution. The banking movement must be dismantled and its organizers captured. We as a species have been trying to oust our parasitic brethren for ages now. The time has come to finish the job. Two, their double-edged response. In order to prevent us from organizing their dismantlement, the banking movement must perform two operations at once, which are often disjointed. On the one hand, they must appear benevolent to those watching communities get ripped asunder. On the other hand, they must actively accelerate their program to destroy communities faster than we are organizing against them. To address the latter problem, they are scrambling to develop as massive a number of technologies to weaponize as they can, including cloning, propulsion systems, nanotechnology, robots, injections, drugs, etc. Now, this is clearly just a posturing in order to start a discussion which never happened. You know, a lot of this technology happens because people have passions in technology. They, um, they want to drive it because they're curious about human destiny and technology and things like that. Um, but what I'm pointing out is that there's a there's a faction of humanity at least that always grasps at that newest technology explicitly for personal power to gain personal power for example um, public technology reveals the Nazi type cloning and grafting programs have become advanced enough for the criminal cowards to have much more than Dolly the cloned sheep the public record widely declared in the 90s that cloning was unstable unreliable and produced only retarded offspring we can assume, like most fake, weak new technology news, that this is to cover up the expert cloning abilities they've likely mastered. This kind of reporting likely applies to flight capabilities, future combat systems, and anti-human weaponry. Well, I don't know how you feel about that, Kay, but that's... I'm obviously, again, just speculating to start a discussion. <laughs> Why not? Let's see, see what we can find out. Like you said, the reason you put these down is to see what we can find out about them and learn from them and see what kind of patterns they make. Yeah, I haven't had anyone come on Clues Forum and say, well, they've got this ray gun, you know, that here's obviously all the videos that, that show that it's being used in, in a way that we can document reliably and blah, 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 blah. I just, you know, we've, we've backed away from that on Clues Forum because we're very, you know, academic, like, okay, please bring us the proofs, blah, 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 and I think that's a fine stance. It is. Because you know what? I think most of it's fake. Yeah. Like, you know, this secret technology. Ten years ago, my sister was sending me all these videos about robots. The military is making robots. Ten years ago, they're no better today. It's the same dumb, stumbling robots. They're, they haven't gotten anywhere. So, I, just, I was thinking about drones, you know, and I was thinking sci-fi shows and things where there's all these little hovering thing is coming to get you but drones are funny they're just they're just like little remote controlled helicopters and airplanes stuff that people have been playing with in toy form um you know you just attach a missile to that which is basically just 
ballistics that have been around forever. And yeah, it's just funny that, you know, we have this idea that it's super alien sophistication. But uh, anyway, we'll, we'll see, I guess, you know, technology is getting better and better. So well, you know, the TED Talks say they are. If you watch TED Talks, we're supposed to be like in the 23rd century right now (laughs) (laughs) with magic windows and things that go from wall to window and produce electricity. What? I think TED Talks is along the same line. of It's for you to say, hey, look, they're taking care of it, hoy. You don't have to worry. (laughs) I'm guessing also they're like, hey, if we had a billion dollars, this could be a real thing, you know? Oh, it could be investor meetings. Yes. I think a lot of it is like, hey, give us attention. We're pretty sure that we won't waste your money. We're trying to convince you that we won't waste your money. That's that's a good one. I like that. That's even better than what I said. No, no. It's, no I really think you make a good point that they um, – it's also used to it's just promoted because it, it it's controversial and um and brags and and somewhat brags about you know our civilization and stuff anyway possible solution train people to recognize when their neighbors are being destroyed in the open do not accept benevolent explanations for such destruction if under attack by the banking movement Create alliances between your community and others in order to oust the problem. Capture them, embarrass them publicly, sue and arrest them, and otherwise disempower them as much as possible. These microchips, you know, microchip grandpa, so if he passes out, you know right away, you know, it calls the hospital automatically, things like that. That's just that's just going to get under people's skin because it's... Ha, ha, nice pun. Nope. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Is that going to work? You know, my mom, after she had her stroke, I got her one of those life alert thing she's supposed to wear around her neck yeah it went out all the time right it stopped working they had to call me i had to fix my credit card i had to whatever had the wi-fi is not working it's like really you're, you're gonna get a chip to work better than our best technology we can buy you know you say that now but then i think someone's gonna do it they're gonna hire some like heart valve manufacturer or something that has to have some ridiculous amount of guarantee and they'll get them to do it and I don't know. I mean, I keep hearing about it injectable through a syringe type microchips. You know, I, I think this kind of thing is something we should we should keep an eye on very closely. Mm-hmm. In a way, you know, what we're doing, we're, we're talking about it. This is part of what I what I say, what I call embarrass them publicly. All right, let's see if this is what you're going to do and challenge them on it, you know, so that we keep a discussion going instead of everyone must have this microchip now or, you know, it sounds and that sounds a bit unlikely to be honest it's more like they'll seduce people into it instead but well i i think it's it is part of the bigger game though tell us we're being subjugated you know i know parents who would probably do it they would chip i mean they're chipping their dog right chipping the dog chip the cat yeah so it's there perhaps like you're saying it's not ready yet they they need more money to perfect it and this is kind of what's happening so you're right kim keep talking about it keep it out in the open so people are aware of it Hmm. Three, their greatest weapon, artificial blind spots. Since a community that recognizes it is under attack by the banking movement is a community that can defend itself, there is an ongoing public inoculation against our ability to detect such control dynamics. We can see that the blind spots they mean to impose on us are introduced just as softly as their weaponry. For instance, through obnoxious subliminal messages in entertainment media or blurry and undiscussed background images of symbols they mean to communicate, we, quote, absorb, unquote, acceptance of their weapon or their imposed blind spot. 
Example, in regards to computerized audiovisual experiences that appear human-like but are 100% computer-animated actors, such systems have signs of weakness which reveal their origin. In order to combat jarring errors that are publicly exposed, the errors are left undiscussed in the open, combated in private, and promptly incorporated into children's entertainment, cartoons, and popular media as unspoken convention. This way, attention is never focused on the obvious seams. Um, I mean the seams between our culture and this introduced technology that is being used in the culture. So, you know, you see like Disney's Cars, the animated movie, and you have a big car trail in the sky, and that's supposed to kind of make you go, oh, okay, there's contrails. That's totally normal for there to be a big cloud that descends from the sky onto the population. Oh, it feels evil, doesn't it? putting that in there for feels, what reason it feels a bit weird you know but i can also see why someone would just do it because they think it's a funny joke they think well i've seen this i don't know what it is i'm gonna put that in there because it's funny you know someone who really wants it to be there because they know that it's actually some kind of chemical program and in the air you know they might just not say anything so I write a possible solution their mistake often seems to be the inability to catch their own errors before they make them. If we can learn to pay attention to early warnings that are later attacked en masse, for example, Simon Jack's September Clues, we might learn about their weaknesses by what they seem to ignore, backstab, and finally, openly fear. And to conclude, this thread was created as a place for people to discuss new and previously undetected control mechanisms which you have noticed in your community but which not enough people give a voice to. Here's a place to openly discuss and warn your brothers and sisters of new simulation technologies which you feel may be used by the larger banking movement in attempts to fool your community. Please note, due to the large subject this topic has already gone through some evolution, let's try to focus on simulation technologies and deceptive system dynamics rather than UFOs, etc. I think good documentation, even if something like that existed, we need to have we need to have a good public understanding because that public understanding would be necessary for any movement against such a thing anyway. We expect, of course, that hopefully if it graduates to like a level that most people can understand and really see that, yeah, okay, that's a true thing to be worried about, then we can focus on it. But until then, I don't really want to go into all the ways that people like to be uh, super alarmist about technology. Right. Alarmist? Don't be alarmist, but be aware. Yeah. Well, what gave you the idea to do technology in banks, the banking movement? Um, I think it's just because there's been talks about microchipping the populace for a long time. And in the guise of some kind of um, like a replacement for credit cards. Oh, you can lose a credit card. It, it explains all the identity theft stories. It may even explain some real identity theft. I've had my identity stolen and my bank account drained. And I had to go through some process to get the, the money back into the account and things like that. So it could be that it's kind of a real threat, but it's also kind of artificial in some way. And so I just thought, we need to pay attention to this. How are we, we being herded into the next money system? And then after all, we learned about how money systems are a key problem that that causes, if not initiates wars, then I think this is this is a big deal. Like, how does money work? How does banking work? And it's kind of like how our society is controlled. Right. Well, yeah. Um, have you heard of Adam Curry? He talks about in um, Amsterdam 
how you can't use cash in any of the stores in some of these areas. Mm. You can only use a card. Everybody has a card and a reader. In fact, they like the cities and the what do you call that? The municipalities, whoever they are, they have um, they like they're making the rules. Not even in conjunction with the banks. That nope, it's just all going to be cards because everyone, I mean, wants their tax money. Number one, <laughs> that's a big deal. But do you think we'd ever go cashless? You think that's where we're trying? They're trying to get us to go. I'm really yeah. I think that's where they would love to have us go. At least some bankers. And then the majority might just fall in line because they'd say, well, wow, this is efficient. And look, our, our system is running so smoothly now. But I have the feeling that America, luckily, has had enough experience with local currencies and currencies that aren't owned by um, disinterested dual citizen or, or people with extra loyalties to outside places kind of systems that we would resist it, hopefully. I mean, we had the greenbacks. That's apparently a real money, as we learned from Richard. There's apparently people still using this or referencing it and saying, yeah, this is this has value. This is backed with silver. There was the order that JFK was ostensibly going to put into effect before he left the world stage for whatever reason. And we covered that in the last episode. Just Actually, we just kind of scraped the surface of that one. But yeah, I think it's a possibility. I mean, I've heard people say, well, a microchip wouldn't be so bad. I could just walk right onto the subway then, right? I don't need to get a ticket. I can just I can just leave my house, go to the subway, and it deducts from my funds. That's great. I would imagine it's like a universal carrier, you know, once it starts. You just load up all your tickets onto the one chip. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then you just, like, in, install the app. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> the phone. The phone is really, like, it seems to me the phone is the testing ground for this. Um, and then the cashless society banking through the phone is another version. What, what would be nice is if there was a bunch of competing currencies that totally came in and usurped the entire uh, usury campaign, you know? Well, yeah, you can have this currency, you can have that currency, but there is no uh, one dominating currency. And there could even be, you know, that that would be like the ultimate... Uh, um, so-called free enterprise capitalism, right? If if these people really believe that sh- that shit, then competition, you know, is healthy. Mm, that's true. So the only difference between cash and cashless is what independence, because it's still like this imaginary money, isn't it? Even if it is in paper form. I, yeah, but I think there's a spiritual difference. I mean, the way we discuss money is how our society actually functions oftentimes. And if we lose the discussion to some obscure force even more than we already have, where we're just creating debt that rolls into an infinite pile that benefits a few people, we're already on the track of losing more and more freedoms to them. And so it's definitely something to keep an eye on and and resist, I think. Um, Have you ever got one of these, um, like my students, right? They're telling me, I'm a high school teacher, if you haven't heard me talk before, (laughs) and they all work at these fast food places. So what happens is they get paid into this account that McDonald's sets up for them, or I think it's Burger King, and then they can only access that account. It's not like their bank account even. I mean, it's really bizarre. And then if they want like lunch, they have to take it from their account. Or if they need a uniform, it comes out of their account. Right. But then they have to go to a special place if they actually want cash. Huh. 
it's hard to like spend from that account. It's not like debit card. It's really bizarre. Sounds like, a bit like some people's experience with PayPal, actually. I mean, there were some people I knew that you know they would, they could not get their money out of PayPal on time, and they were always wrestling on, on the phone with them. And PayPal just does not like to use a phone. They like to have everything automated. So that was a nightmare for a while. Oh, yeah, I just got the email for the class action lawsuit. Ah, interesting. Yeah, they finally settled. Oh, mm, settling. Yeah. So if you have like between 10000 and 20000 in a PayPal account that was held up for 14 days, this is how they're going to do it. And you could get like a thousand back or two thousand. I think the max is like three thousand if you had like mm. over twenty thousand in an account and then PayPal held it back. Yeah. But look at that. Someone won against the, you know, that big giant behemoth PayPal. They that, lost. That's interesting. There's also some about Microsoft that I've seen in the past and sometimes there's some fine print like you know, they, they they rule something like, Yeah, you can accept this one time settlement um, then you're never allowed to sue PayPal or such and such corporation ever again. So I wonder sometimes about those. And it's it's such a strange uh, legal system we have that's all tied up with the fake money. Hey, guess how much I could get if I joined the lawsuit from PayPal? Uh, 50 bucks? Between zero and five dollars. Oh, nice. There you go. <laughs> is, is my range. <laughs> I didn't have enough money in my account, I guess. Carter on November 1st, 2009 says, I suggest that we begin by discussing the terminology. Precise terminology will help cut through the issues. What is a, quote, bank? Is an investment bank really a bank? The government regulates the use of certain terms applied to certain professions, such as engineer, lawyer, doctor. The regulations applied to these professions have legal, including tort law, implications. Should the terms banker and insurer be applied to such exacting legal standards? If engineers produced buildings and bridges that collapsed as regularly as economies, then we would be sued into oblivion. Oh, that's a good <laughs> point, right? Yeah. It is time to regulate the financial industries with the same rigor that honest, productive industries are regulated. I got it. Free market, globalism, and new world order et al. are doublespeak for the concept of unregulated opportunism, rape of fellow man, Ponzi schemes, money for nothing, etc. People who perpetrate such schemes are in a lower phyla than the majority of humans on the planet. How rude. They have... <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though, right? Well, it could, I suppose, you know, if as long as they're playing with classifications and names, you know, may as well throw that name game back at them. But, I mean, they're booking, like, old people out of their retirement. It's, it's, that's, that's, you know. the, that's the behavior of psychopaths. I, we need to get used to the fact that we live in a species that is, that is on a psychopathic to empathic scale. People can be born into any one of those, I think. Well, there you go, right? And see, now if you point that out, are you wrong? You're like, wait, 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 don't listen to him. He's a psychopath. Mm. No, his information's wrong. Now, yeah, right? That's I mean, it feels rude in our society to call people out like that, even though it's true. Yeah, no. It'd be, it'd be nice if they once in a while said, yeah, I don't give a shit for anyone. Punks are known for doing that sometimes. That's true. All right. They have not evolved to the level of modern humanity. They know, sense, intuit that they are incapable of competing with more evolved humans. Hence, they resort to criminal activities to perpetuate their existence. Extortion and fire insurance scams, racism, etc. Communication theory shows us that people project their own personalities 
onto their opponents. For example, if they don't trust someone, it's mostly because they themselves cannot be trusted. They project their own possible reactions onto the opponent. It is because they themselves cannot be trusted. He's going to rip me off from I would rip him off in this particular situation. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's universally pretty accurate. Yeah, that's true. I think that's also why empaths have a hard time uh, processing the fact that psychopaths exist because they're like, well, I would never murder someone in cold blood, but oh, wait. You know, they try to project um, the kind of things, that, the kind of reasoning on that they would use onto other people, which I think is good. You know, it's useful. But there's also this other thing where we really do not understand, and it doesn't have to be empath versus psycho. It can sometimes just be, I don't understand that person's religion. But yeah, that's because they don't think like you. <laughs> exactly. They have different motivations completely. All right. When people point racists, it is most likely that they themselves are racist. They know how racists think, so they apply this logic to their targets. I think when people... That, what yeah. do you think? I don't know. I think that's partially true, but... Well, I'm not sure about the racist one, because if, I mean, if I'm pointing out someone's a racist, because I really, I felt like the situation hurt someone else's feelings. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, I'm like, wow, you just, Matt was so rude what you just said. That just hurt. That Wow. That made me feel bad what you just said. I mean, that's how I call people a racist. I don't think it's necessarily because the person is projecting. I think it's a good rule of thumb to think about. But the um, the phrase most likely, I don't know if I would agree with here. When people point to terrorists, it is most likely that they themselves are actually terrorists. Well, I, I might agree with that one. Well, that one, in, in, in practice, that's what we're seeing, isn't it? You know, the, the TV is saying the TV is a terrorist, in a sense, by, by making everyone super afraid. Right, so I think when the TV points out racists, it's to divide us. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. It seems to me that what they're describing is Cartier is not necessarily saying that this is how everyone behaves, but it is how a certain personality behaves. Um, perhaps a lower personality. Correct, a lower, right, a lower thinking. All right, so the terrorists, yeah, who, who, the only one pointing out terrorists are these governments, politician nonsense. IEDs, insurgents, whatever. They dreamed this shit up and then imposed these dreams onto their opponents. Communication theory. You expect people to act like you yourself would act. Establish the expectation. If your opponent doesn't act like you expect, then create the action, meaning cause it to happen. Yeah, interesting. It seems like they're actually describing pretty well a, a mode of thinking we could get in in order to counter some of the stuff that they're doing. Right. So the, you, you see um, big organizations behaving in a certain way. Now he says, think about it. Are they the terrorists calling out the terrorists? It's, but it's all because, I mean, we believe them because of, he says, a communication theory. It's the idea that you expect people to act like you yourself would act. Mm. Simon JCP comes along on uh, April 5th, 2010. And uh, they write, the victim's evidence establishes the role of the banking community in 9-11 for reasons both obvious and unobvious. Obvious. Many banks were involved in providing employment, unquote, for victims and other sim characters, actors, perps, such as Stanley Prath, an employee of Fuji Bank, lost 15 employees, supposedly. If you haven't read Stanley Premnath's story, please look it up now. Anyway. Unobvious. The that B have shown time and time again that they care absolutely nothing for human life. Therefore, one must wonder, why go to all the trouble of evacuating the towers and then demolishing them, creating over 2,000 non-existent, quote, people, unquote. 
That question can be answered when one poses another question. Why was the New York Stock Exchange able to reopen days after the attack? Obviously, if the Twin Towers had really collapsed while full of real flesh-and-blood financial wizards, there would have been a huge economic crisis, and Wall Street would have taken a, a huger-than-huge hit. Furthermore, remember the United Airlines insider trading? This story, promoted by the mainstream media-slash-mainstream truth movement, appears to be another red herring designed to lead back to, quote, airplanes, unquote, and LIHOP or let it happen on purpose. In other words, insider trading is a contrived angle designed, floated for damage control purposes, just like prior warnings and bad stand-down stories. The important fact here, however, is that a bank put its name on the story and was thus involved in floating it. Yes! Thank you! Gosh, someone gets it. 3150 put options were placed on United Airlines stock exactly one week before on the 6th. This was four times the daily average, 787.5, of put options on United Airlines stock. Two days later, put options exploded to 25 times the daily average. Now, which firm managed these UAL put options? Deutsche Bank, which acquired Bankers Trust A.B. Brown, and Carl Levin, accused of laundering drug money. Until 97, the chairman of A.B. Brown was A.B. Buzzy Krongard, who, after the merge between A.B. Brown and Bankers Trust, became vice chairman. At the bank, he oversaw private client relations. In 98, Krongard, an ex-Marine who had studied at the U.S. intelligence hotbed at Upson University, joined the CIA and resigned in 2004. He was the third-in-command executive director at the CIA and was also linked to Blackwater. Wow, that's crazy. So a bank with CIA connections was used as the heart of the put-option story, another connection between the attacks-slash-simulation and the banking community. This brings us to the involvement of foreign and domestic military intelligence operations working within the financial world. There is indeed quite a lot of evidence of it. One of Citigroup's directors, for example, was one of the Clinton-era CIA chiefs, John M. Dutch. Another banking to the simulation attacks is Standard Chartered Bank. Standard Chartered Bank provided an account to Fayez Ahmed, one of the UA-175 SIMMADs. That same bank occupied four floors of Building 7. So a SIMMAD means like simulated madman or simulated SIMBAD. Another bank that added an account for SIMMADs was SunTrust Banks, Inc., most of the so-called hijacker SIMADs had SunTrust accounts. Who's behind SunTrust? Warren Buffett, the world's richest man and a 9-11 perp. The banking community appeared to be very much involved in the 9-11 simulation. It's interesting, and I, you know, I was thinking too, and Simon brings this up frequently, why exactly, why exactly was it that so many uh, uh, brokers and sort of insider trading people would be targeted by so-called terrorists, what, that they didn't want to terrorize the citizenry they wanted to terrorize some people who are known generally for exploiting the rest of us? How is that supposed to terrorize the population? I didn't get that. And then it's so convenient, too, because they can say, oh, yeah, we lost all these people, and then we just went back to making tons of money off of everyone. So, <laughs> so what was the, um, I forget, after the towers fell? How was Wall Street? What did that do to it? In the newspapers, oh, this is going to cause a great depression. This is going to, you know, darn those terrorists, you know, we're never our economy has been injured our economy has been hurt it's like the whole drama was we saved we got to do cpr on our uh, on our banking system but as far as what actually happened it seems that uh, something was primed for the again no pun intended um the uh, mortgage scandals that happened just like less than a decade later yeah and then a huge bailout of the banks yeah you know can't we look back and then see what happened, and then go, okay, now, was that on purpose? Mm, right. No, we're not very good at doing that. <laughs> was it all just an accident? 
So after my nephew got the loan, he was in default within six months, which means he couldn't make like the first, even the first couple of payments. That's crazy. It makes, it reminds me of um, how student debt is created kind of out of nothing. Apparently, according to Richard's studies, the school sees money from the bank, but that debt is all created and sticks with the student as soon as it's created. So it it's a very strange scam that unfortunately this generation is getting caught up in. Mr. Calvini, we'd like to know why the IBBC, a bank, would be purchasing hundreds of millions of dollars worth of missile guidance and control systems from your company. The IBBC has purchased billions of dollars worth of silkworm missiles from the People's Republic of China, which they have pre-sold to clients in the Middle East, contingent upon the missiles being equipped with Vulcan guidance systems. My company is one of only two in the world which produced the Vulcan. Who's the other? Sunai. Ahmed Sunai. Of Turkish Aerotech. But why is the bank committing so much of its capital and resources to the sale of these missiles? It's a test. Small arms are the only weapons used in 99% of the world's conflicts. And no one has the capacity to manufacture them faster and cheaper than China. What Skarsen is attempting to do is to make the IBBC the exclusive broker of Chinese small arms to the third world. And the missile deal is the gateway transaction. Yeah, but billions of dollars invested simply to be a broker. There can't be that much profit for them. No, this is not about making profit from weapon sales. It's about control. Control the flow of weapons? Control the conflict? No. No, no. The IBBC is a bank. Their objective isn't to control the conflict. It's to control the debt that the conflict produces. You see, the real value of a conflict, the true value, is in the debt that it creates. You control the debt, you control everything. You find this upsetting, yes? But this is the very essence of the banking industry. To make us all, whether we be nations or individuals, slaves to debt. That concludes episode 8. In the next episode, we will tackle another enormous subject, which again ties into the one we just covered, the gods of science. So that's Einstein and Kepler and so forth. The people who basically create the value system that we share, this sort of globalist value system, which our present implementation of money hinges on. Isn't it funny how all these topics tie so well together? They do, right? What's that thing that's tying them all together? I'm not sure. Maybe it's just maybe the fact that we have latched on to some new, new way of thinking about things, which helps people... Uh, wake up to topics and go, oh, wait, this connects to this and that connects to that. and right. They connect in so many different ways, but sure, money is a huge one. And, you know, I'm thinking that's really what's behind most of these scams. You know, any and name a scam, Ebola scam, you, who, who's making money off it. Right. Right, terrorist totally. scam. Who's making yes. money off Totally. And it's about, and then after a certain point, the money just becomes power. 
the money is just the means to an end. You know, we come to this conclusion after looking at all this money stuff that the bank is kind of an earthly religion. And that um, that is confirmed by Apache, another researcher on our forum, and other folks who have been looking into this. And there's a lot more to read in the thread than I thought. So take a look and hopefully join the forum and contribute. Uh, that is the end of the reading. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Until next time, let's, let's keep it real keep together. Keep it real together. <laughs> That's right. We're keeping it real here at the King's Chronicle. Keeping it real. All right. See ya. Take care. Take care.